Well, good morning. How y'all doing? Well, as AJ said, my name is Jonathan Suggs. I'm the young adult coordinator here at the church. I'm one of the pastoral residents as well. So uh, if you're new, we haven't met. Uh, we're so glad you're here. We picked a great Sunday. We're going to be continuing our series in Luke. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 4. That's where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew right in front of you. Uh, it's free to use. We'll also have them up on the screen here behind me. So Luke chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 31 through 37. And as we've been going through Luke, we've gone through, uh, we've split up into four series, four parts. We're in part two, looking at the first part of Jesus' ministry. And so we've worked through some of the, the early parts. Remember of Jesus' birth and John the Baptist's birth and uh, Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. And then uh, as well, Jesus' temptations in the wilderness with Satan. And we saw last week Jesus really kind of step into and launch his ministry in his hometown of all places, of Nazareth. And we thought we'd see a, a welcome, wide, open-armed reception. Instead, we saw rejection. Well, this week, we're going to see it start out somewhat similar. But it's going to be a really different kind of tale of two tales, tale of two cities here. And um, as we compare Nazareth and the city of Capernaum that he goes into. And what he's going to show us here is kind of the, the cutting of the ribbon in his ministry. What kind of should have been last week, we see this week. Where he's going to teach with such authority and power that it shocks the people. And, uh, you know, something we have in common with the people of Jesus' day is that we have a really complex relationship with authority, don't we? Really, since Genesis 3, since sin entered the world, we have a really interesting relationship with how we relate to authority. And it's going to be a theme that characterizes the rest of Jesus' ministry. But today, as people who live in an interesting, peculiar time with authority, uh, it makes us a little uncomfortable, doesn't it, when we talk about it? And there's a, there's a genuine reason for some of the distrust we have. So a lot of people in our culture, and I'm sure even here, have had uh, really hard experiences with people in authority. We, there's a genuine distrust of government, of the traditional structures of authority, of the church, of the home, of businesses, bosses. And so we have a, a really tense relationship. Some of y'all might be getting kind of nervous right now. And you're like, is he about to talk about politics this morning? I'm not talking about politics. All right, we're going to be looking specifically at Jesus' authority. And in particular, the authority of Jesus' word. And so let me ask you. When it comes to God's word, what is the relationship like between it and your heart? I'm not asking what your quiet time is like or how often you go to church, or how long you pray in the mornings. But what is the relationship like between God's word and your heart? Because either it's, it is the authority in your life, or something else will be. Period. And, and this idea of the authority of God's word was really at the center of one of the biggest debates in church history, uh, the Reformation. And the, the Protestant reformers, they said that uh, the that scripture alone is at the top of the pyramid. It is the chief authority of the church's life and doctrine. Now, you're probably mostly good little Protestants, so you know that. You, when you think about coming to church here, you think about uh, how we like to uphold the scriptures here. M most of you say that when you go through the membership class. You say, I love that y'all preach the word. They all hold it up highly. That's great. But has the idea that scripture is the chief authority really drip down from the way that you view the institution of the church to your own relationship with God and his word. The, the phrase that they use, sola scriptura, is that true of your heart? 
Because I think all of us have somewhat of a, an authority problem when it comes to the relationship between us and Jesus' word. We, at the end of the day, we really don't like that he is the authority. We want the authority. So, why should we listen to him then? Why should we sit under Jesus' authority and let him and his word inform our hearts and our minds? All right, that's what we're going to see this morning, okay? So, we'll be in Luke chapter 4. I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that we get the privilege of being able to sing it, preach it, participate in it, and just enjoy it. And God, I ask that as it's preached, that you would give me grace, that you would give me clarity of speech, you would give me confidence and boldness uh, to expose the word. But I also ask that for everyone here, you would give us grace to hear, that you would open our eyes and open our ears to be receptive to your word. And God, I ask that through it, you would make us more and more like Jesus. That as we leave here today, we would look more like your son than when we came. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Y'all there? Luke 4. All right. We're starting in verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. So last week, as I mentioned, we saw Jesus go into his hometown of Nazareth. And he doesn't have the reception we would expect. He's really rejected. They tried to throw him off a cliff. It's really exciting. If you weren't there last week, go read it. And then he leaves Nazareth, which was probably a pretty small town, and goes to Capernaum. And Capernaum was probably a a much bigger town. It was uh, a center for trade. It was on a lot of the trade routes going on the northern border of Israel. It was on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. So it was prime real estate for fishermen. And it was probably sizably different than Nazareth. And he goes in to Nazareth, into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he's rejected. And he goes to Capernaum, and he does the same thing. And we we saw last week that this was probably a pattern of his. He just, he always went into the town, went into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and had an opportunity to teach. That's what we see here. So what's going to be the reception? Well, how are the people going to respond this time as they hear this man from Nazareth teach from their Old Testament scriptures? Look at verse 32. And they were astonished at his teaching. So, pretty good so far, right? It's not really that different, though, than than Nazareth. Because it says that when he was in Nazareth, that the people were, they marveled at his gracious words. And then all of a sudden they realized that they knew his dad. And they were like, wait, you're Joseph's son. And then they rejected him because they were offended at his teaching. So here, though, the people start out and they're astonished. And it's a little different because the word that Luke uses for astonished is actually the word struck. So these people, as they're hearing Jesus uh, read the scriptures and sit down, they're floored by it. All of a sudden, they are struck by it, which is pretty amazing when you think about it because the people who would go to the synagogue were very outwardly religious people. There are people who probably went to Jerusalem for the feast days and the sacrifices. They uh, carried out the traditions. They took part in the fasting and the almsgiving, the prayers, all that stuff. They were very outwardly religious, and it's hard to impress outwardly religious people, right? Because they've heard it all. And so they've heard teaching week by week in the synagogue from rabbis and teachers, and then all of a sudden this man steps up and teaches in a way that they've never heard before, and they're just starstruck. They're dumbstruck. What caused them to be so struck? What is it about Jesus' teaching that catches their eye? You see it? For his word possessed authority. So Jesus is going to show us in this passage 
two different types of authority. Two ways that we often think about authority. First, right here, just in his teaching, he shows us that he is an authority on a teaching, on a topic. A lot of you are authorities on different kinds of topics. We have, you know, authorities on airplanes and cars and taxes and loans and all that kind of stuff. You, you went to school, you did your due diligence, you came out, and now you're viewed as an authority in our culture. People go to you when they have questions about whatever. I did one year of PT school, and people think that I am a physical therapist, and I have been practicing for 20 years, and I get lots of questions, and I'm honored by it, but I'm not an authority. But a lot of you are. A lot of you are authorities on topics. And Jesus shows right here, he stands up and teaches as if he is the world authority on God and his word. Now, Mark at this point includes that the type of Jesus' authority, or the type of authority Jesus teaches with right here, was altogether different than the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew includes that point too. And the way that, I won't spend too long in this part, <laughs> I don't want to bore you with the way authority works in that culture, but the way that authority worked in that culture was you would have teachers that were brought up under teachers, and they would come into this space, and they would uh, stand up, read the scriptures, sit down, and then roll out basically a laundry list of all the different authorities that they would quote from, and they would build their teaching in that way. So they would say, you know, Rabbi Eliezer said that this word in Isaiah 48 means such and such. And Rabbi Zacharias said that this word in Isaiah 48 means such and such. And they would kind of build their credibility in that way. Think like, you know, those really boring academic books that like half the page is footnotes, and you're like me, you have to read like every single footnote because you're OCD. The ones that are really good for like a Sunday afternoon nap after this. That's kind of what they would do week after week. And in their collective imagination, that's what authority meant. As the people are listening, they say, that man has authority to speak because he knows his stuff. So Jesus steps into a culture where authority lays at the feet of tradition and succession, which he has, in some sense, physically, humanly, none of, and he stands up and teaches as if he is the chief authority in that atmosphere. He teaches as if he is the author of all that is written before him. Now, does that get under your skin a little bit? Probably not. Why? Why does this strike the people in that day, but it does nothing sometimes to us, that we can read right past this, and we don't care? I think it's because we don't view authority the same way as they did. The culture, the times have changed somewhat. That we don't, that authority doesn't uh, hang in the same balances as it did there. So the question for us then is, how does Jesus' authority confront our own cultural views of authority? That's what we need to ask. So if authority then is found in tradition and succession, where do, where's authority found today? You, 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 you. It's in the individual. It's in the person. It's what I, have, what I feel like on the inside. Right now, the authority of each individual's feelings takes the cake at the end of the day. It's whatever I feel like is true of me, whatever I feel like is true of others, whatever I feel like is true of God and institutions and culture and government and good and bad and wise and foolish. What I say at the end of the day defines my reality, that the world is plastic. I can mold it to whatever I want it to be. And at the end of the day, I am the sole authority on what I want to be true in my life. That's what our culture says. And nobody can tell you different because you know why? Because you're the world authority on your life. And we do this, we do this in so many ways. This was a really irritating sermon to prepare for because I noticed this in my own life 
all week. And you know, I think if you were to ask every single person in this room, we would all say that we all think that we're, a, we're pretty smart, right? That we, we kind of have it figured out. That if other people just you know, thought the way we thought and drove the way we drove and lived the way we lived and shopped at the grocery stores we shopped at, then this would just be a better place. At the end of the day, you think, you really do, I do, that I am the world authority on culture, on government, on relationships, on where you should buy your groceries, on what kind of tattoos you should have and shouldn't have, that I think I'm pretty smart and I should have some authority in my life. We all do this. Some of us do this in really explicit ways, right? You, you say, I'm not going to be bound by the cultural, by the traditional values of my day. I'm not going to be constrained by moral principles. I'm going to push them all off. I'm going to live however I want to live. Some of you do that. Some of you, though, do this really subtly. Do you notice that? That you, you obey all the rules. You go to church. You read your Bible. You're nice to people. You go on mission trips. You might get John 3.16 tattooed right here on your bicep. And anyone who's ever led people knows that you can really try to assert your authority by just obeying the rules, keeping your head down and doing your thing day by day by day by day. And if you've ever led people, you know that some people will buddy up to you and obey all the things you say and just agree with everything you say because they really just want to be real close to the seat of power. They want to have influence at the end of the day. Some of us do this in really opposite ways. Some of us are really immoral. And we want to exercise our authority by saying that what I say at the end of the day goes, and then some of us do this by just being really moral. And we say, but really underneath all that is just a desire, the same exact desire for authority, for control, for power in our life. So do you see the problem? Our culture, we think that our culture doesn't like authority. That's not true. Our culture loves authority. We love all of it. We want all of it. I want the authority. I want the say-so at the end of the day to dictate my actions, to determine my life. And one of the reasons we don't let Jesus speak into our life a lot of times is because we want to be the authority. I don't want him to have authority. But if you're at the center of your authority, what happens to Jesus? He becomes a threat to you. He is completely and utterly dangerous. Because he might not agree with the you that you think you are. He might not agree with the way that society should work. He might not agree with the way you think church should go. This is what uh, one author who's written a lot on this recently, Carl Truman, this is what he said. If we are above all what we think, what we feel, what we desire, then anything that interferes or obstructs those thoughts, feelings, or desires inhibits us as people and prevents us from being the self that we are convinced that we are. Such obstructions inhibit identity in a deep, substantial way. You see, people in general, but especially Jesus, becomes dangerous to us if we are the center of authority. We all imagine that authority works in this way. Just like the rabbis and the teachers of that, they believe that authority was in tradition and succession. That's just our imagination, what we think it looks like. And when Jesus exposes that the seat of power is not what we really think it is, it's shocking to us. It puts us back on our feet. You, you ever been driving down 26? Have you been pulled over by a police officer? You know, and in one moment, you are the world authority of I-26, that some people are driving too fast, some are driving too slow, some are driving too crazy, some are driving too timid, and then all of a sudden, those 
blue lights show up in your rear view and you realize real quick that you don't have the authority that you think you have, right? That's kind of what's happening in this passage. So we're going to see this authority that Jesus steps up and and claims to have. We're going to see it tested in this next scene. We're going to see, does the man who claim authority, does he really have it at the end of the day? What's this authority really even made of? And as his authority is tested, we need to consider two important questions that all of us really want to know when it comes to authority. Is will this authority produce? Will it work? Is it sufficient? And then two, what kind of authority is this? Is this good authority? Is it good for me? Is it good for others? All right, so there's your two questions. Is it sufficient and is it good? That's what we're going to see. Look at verse 33. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. So this is just a fascinating situation. Here's Jesus stepping up, teaching. Meanwhile, there is a demon-possessed man that no one seems to care about. Now, it's kind of like, oh, Jim? Yeah, Jim, you know. Odd guy, possessed by a demon, bangs his head against the wall, whatever. But he's really fine. Like, no, he's harmless. He's here every week. And the Greek gives that idea that he is literally just as a, this is a continual thing that the, the demon's always there, which shows us something. Can you go to church and be completely held captive by other things than the authority of Jesus' word? Because that's really what demon possession is. It's the quintessential sign of bondage in that day, that when you read the, the Bible and you see demon possession— it should scare you because this person has lost all control of their thoughts, their uh, abilities, their will, their actions, and this person is in the church. One commentator said that, that Satan possessed a man and then took him to church. Can you go to church and not be rightly related to the authoritative word of Jesus? Absolutely. Can you come in these doors and be completely held captive by the cultural idols and the desires of your flesh? Yes. In fact, this is, you know, Satan in Western America, he's not primarily doing it in such, doing his work in such drastic, scary, frightening ways. A lot of times it's really subtle. You know, C.S. Lewis is, uh, wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters, where this uncle demon is counseling this nephew demon on how to tempt a human. And in chapter two, this uncle demon tells his nephew demon, he says, what you need to do is you need to take him to church because church is one of our greatest weapons. But when you're there, make sure he's only looking at the wrong things. Don't let him actually see what's going on. Have him instead come in and look at how pristine the space is, like how pink our ceilings are, how mauve our carpet is. But have him look at how like ordinary and just funny people look. Have, Have him look at the guy who has the funny beard and the lady with the squeaky shoes. Have him notice that they always play the wrong music. And that the sheet of the hymn that you're trying to find is not there. Have him just notice all the things that are wrong and all that. And what happens is we completely miss what the Spirit of God is doing when the Word of God goes out and it's sung by all of you. It's preached. It's participated in through like baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we completely miss it. And what can happen is week after week after week, we come into this space and we just kind of get used to the demonic influence with just the distraction of the eyes, distraction of the ears. And we miss the fact that God's word is being proclaimed and sung and that we need to submit to it. And we can completely miss it. 
But the scene gets even more interesting. Look at the rest of verse 33. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So there's an incredible amount of tension in this room, in this passage, in this synagogue. And I want to draw that out. So I'm going to show you a few things from this passage that we all need to see. All right? First, notice that the demon is surprised that Jesus is there. All right, so this is, do you see the irony in all of this right now? Like, Jesus is there. Everyone is surprised. No one's surprised that there's a demon, but the demon's surprised that Jesus is there. This passage is really characterized by surprises. But it shows us that, the, that not only are the people trembling before Jesus and his word, but the demon, as soon as he sees the Son of God stand up and teach, is terrified. He trembles before him. He says, what, why have you come, Jesus? Are you, why are you meddling in our business? What have we to do with each other? Why are you in my domain? And he assumes it can only mean one thing. And that's the second thing I want to show you in this section. That the demon has pretty good theology, right? It's not bad theology. The demon, he's, not, he's a little off on his timing, but he, he knows that because Jesus is there, there, there has to be, uh, it has to be because he's come to destroy them. He knows, Genesis 3, that the seed of the woman would one day come and crush the head of the serpent. And he thinks, well, that's got to be today. I mean, he's a little off on his timetable. That doesn't happen until Revelation. But he's somewhat right. John says in 1 John that, that, um, that Jesus came to destroy the works of the evil one. Paul says in Colossians 2 that, uh, that Christ put to, the, Christ basically put to shame Satan and his cronies by triumphing over them on the cross. Cronies is in the Greek. Yeah. <clears throat> Which means that he has a generally good idea of Jesus' purpose, why he's come. But he also knows Jesus' identity, his true identity. He's probably the only one in the room that actually recognizes who it is who's actually unfolding the word of God for them. And he says that you are the Holy One of God. And this is a really interesting phrase. Uh, it's used in the Old Testament to refer to Aaron in terms of his high priesthood. It's used in, uh, to refer to Samson in terms of his Nazarite vow, so as one set apart to do the works of God. It's used of Elisha in terms of his, uh, pro- his prophetic role. So three major figures in the Old Testament, but it's also used in a similar variation is used in Luke chapter 1. When Luke describes the angel coming to Mary and says that you will give birth to the Holy One, the Son of God. Which means, at least by Luke using this phrase, that when he is referring to the Holy One of God, he is referring to the transcendently pure, eternal Son of God who's been anointed by the Spirit of God to do God's work, to complete God's work of redemption. That's pretty good theology, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, and it's coming right out of the mouth of a demon, which shows us that not only can you come to church and not be held captive by the Word of God, but you can have really good, tight, precise theology and not relate rightly to God's authoritative word. I love, I love theology. My wife gets frustrated because I buy too many theology books. It is, I love it. But theology is going to always make matters uh, worse or better in your life. If your heart is hard to the things of God, theology is only going to become a weapon to you. But if your heart is soft, receptive to sitting under the authoritative word of God, letting him inform your life, Letting him fix your relationships. 
letting him direct your path, then theology becomes brilliant. It's amazing. It's only going to further that. But theology in itself won't save. Theology in itself won't hold you captive to the things of God. Demon is prime example number one. So when you study God's word, when you read books in theology, when you sit under teaching of God's word, are you asking, how should this be informing my heart? How should this be informing my marriage, my parenting? How does this change the way I relate to God and his word, to relate to others, to participate in the church? Are you doing that slow, grinding, mental processing of what does this mean for me? So we see the demon is surprised. We see that he has really good theology. But then third, we see the contrast between these two foes. It's kind of like a Rocky movie at this point. You know, like the lights have gone out. We have like two spotlights. I guys, you know, one corner over here wearing blue. We got this really bad demon-possessed person. And Luke, when he describes him, stacks up terms. He's like, it's the um, evil spirit of uncleanness is how he describes him. To just show how bad and how wicked and fierce this guy is. But on the other side, in the other corner, wearing red, we have the perfectly transcendent, holy Son of God who's come to complete and accomplish all of God's redemptive work. And everyone in the room in that moment is holding their breath. And they're wondering, will the one who just stood up with such authority and taught with with authority that we've never seen before, will he be able to handle this? Will he be able to really get the job done? Because at the end of the day, the question in your mind and my mind when we come to the Word of God is, can this book really handle my brokenness? Can it really fix my problems? We all know that we come to the Word of God with issues and things that, that aren't the way they should be. We all come with broken marriages, relationships, broken hearts, sinful hearts, broken minds. We love the wrong things. We hate the wrong things. We struggle with apathy. We struggle with overworking all at the same time. We struggle to love others. Is the word of God sufficient to handle my brokenness? Will the one who came and taught with such authority actually be able to come through? Everyone is asking that question in that moment. As the demon stands up, points his finger at the son of God who's in the pulpit and says, you are the holy one of God if you come to destroy us. And everyone is wondering, what is Jesus going to do? Will his word prove to be enough? Isn't that the question we're asking? God, will your word actually be enough in my life, in my heart, in my relationships? Will it prove true in the end? Verse 35. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst... He came out of him, having done him no harm. Jesus will not have it. As Steve said last week, Jesus makes an emphasis that he is going to define his ministry and his person. He will not let other people, and especially not demons, define him in front of the people. Jesus is going to. And right here, in these words, we see the second type of authority. So not only is Jesus the authority in teaching, but he also shows that he has authority to get the job done. Now, we all agree, right, that when, when God speaks, it's not just another command, right? Right? That it's not just another voice in the wind. It's not just another person on a blog 
right? That there's power. There's real emphatic power. There's something divine happening in that moment when God opens his mouth and speaks. And one of the most amazing things when we open up scripture and we see the way that God even defines his own speech, the way that God talks about the way that he speaks, it's fascinating. You know, he's not just describing reality when God speaks in his word. Do you know that? He's not just the narrator saying like, and this happened and this happened. But as its author, when he speaks, he's creating reality. You think to creation when God says into the nothingness, he sends his word out into the nothingness. He says, let there be light. And boom, light, substance comes out of nothing. He says, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let the waters be separated from the waters. And it happens. He says, let there be dry land and there's dry land. He says, put birds and avocados and people and all that on it. And it happens. Just like he says it, every time, because he says it. Think of, think of Jesus on the cross when he's hanging there and he says, it is finished. He's not just describing something that's happening behind the scenes, but because he says it is finished in that very moment, at the center point of history, all of the records of sin and debt for God's people are canceled, done, because he says so. When he speaks, he creates reality. All of creation stops, listens, and obeys every time. He's 100% at bat. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 55. Most of you probably heard this. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed for the very thing for which I sent it. For God's namesake, his word will never fail, ever. Do you believe that? So that when Jesus gets up and he speaks to this demon and he says, hey, shut up and get out of here, the demon does it. He does, notice, notice what Jesus doesn't say. He's not like, oh man, all right, these guys are bad. All right, everyone back up. Let me get my exorcism kit. Where's my exorcism kit? He just says, hey, zip it and leave, and the demon does it. Of course he does it. The creator is telling the creature what to do. Do you believe that God's word is sufficient in your life? Seriously, really, at the end of the day. Are you just kind of jerry-rigging your spiritual life to just get through each day, just kind of duct-taping it up together with, with good works and, and a smile. Do you know what jerry-rigging is? It's, it's what people do when, when they're at sea and they didn't have time to fix their boat or something like that, and they would just kind of patch it up. Is that what you're doing in your spiritual life? What if, when we, when we recognize that the things aren't the way they should be, when, I don't, when I'm not as informed as I think I am, what if we instead came humbly to the Word of God and said, would you inform me? Would you speak to me, God? Would you show me how to engage in work with my coworkers, with my boss? Would you show me how to be a better spouse at home? Would you show me what to do with my apathy? God, teach me, inform me, draw out the idols that are in my heart. I can't see them, but I know that you uh, discern the thoughts and the intentions of the man. How do you think your spiritual life would be different? How do you think this, this church would be different? If when we went into community groups, or we came here on Sunday mornings, and we engaged in conversation with other people, recognizing that we all need to submit to the Word of God, and not just talking about 
you know, crazy weather. You know, it's hot one day, cold today. Like, yes, that's fine. Develop relationships. But what if there was a deeper level to our conversations? What if there was a, a recognition that all of us here have problems, we have issues, but the word of God is sufficient to handle them? What if we counseled one another with that perspective? And we said, I believe that the word of God is sufficient to handle X. What, how would the city look different? How would your relationships with your classmates and your coworkers and your neighborhoods and your grocery stores, whatever, how would that look different if you believe that the word of God is sufficient to handle each and every single person's struggle that I lay eyes on? How can I step into conversation relationships with other people who don't know where to go, who don't know left from right, knowing that the word of God is sufficient to handle their every need? That man actually does not live by bread alone, but by every single word that comes from the mouth of God. So let me ask you, what in your life do you not believe that God's word is sufficient to handle? Think about that. It's a great question for you to talk about in community groups. What in my life do I not believe that God's word is really sufficient to handle? What place do I think is too protected, too dark, too cold that God's word actually can't penetrate light into it and redeem it? Now, the people's response in this passage is crucial, both in the beginning of this passage and at the end. So look here at the, in verse 36 and 37 at the people's response. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So do you see what's changed from the beginning of the passage to now? You see in the beginning of the passage, their response? Look at it. They're astonished that Jesus' teaching has authority. But here, now that the demon has left their midst, they recognize and they're amazed at the fact that Jesus has authority and power. That he doesn't just have the right. He has the ability to carry it out at the end of the day. That he really can get the job done. But the scene really ends with a question. You see it? It's all the people in the region chatting. And they're saying, what? did you hear about what happened in Capernaum? What is this word? What do we do with this? What do we do with the fact that this man taught like we've never heard anyone teach before? And he cast out demons with just five words. What do we do with that? And I think the Holy Spirit ends with this question in this passage for us to ask ourselves this question. What is this word? What is my relationship like to God's authoritative word? What's the relationship between God's word and my heart at the end of the day? And we, when we come face to face with authority, we can do three things. Specifically, Jesus' authority. We can either try to uh, usurp it. So we can say, nope, I'm plugging my ears, clenching my teeth, I'm digging my heels in, and I am the authority here. You can't say anything to me. I define my reality. I'm sticking to my guns, and that's what I'm doing. That's one way we can respond. You can try to also use it. You can try to manipulate Jesus to kind of put him in your debt. So I'm going to do all the right things. I'm going to be extremely moral. I'm going to go to church. You can be a wonderful humanitarian and do all the good things. The whole time, it's because you really just want Jesus to be in your debt. 
You want to say, I want to be sitting right next to the seat of power. You're really not that different. I'm not that different than James and John. When they have their mother go to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, can my son sit at your right hand? That's what we do a lot of the times by just putting forth our good works. Maybe it'll go well for me. Maybe I'll have a good day. Maybe my relationships will get better. But the whole time, we're just trying to manipulate him. But of course, what happens when Jesus exercises authority in a way that we're not cool with, that we didn't approve of? What happens when tragedy strikes? You're either probably going to dig your heels in even more and say, no, I'm in control here. Or you might just toss in the towel and say, I knew I couldn't trust him. I hate God. Why did I ever let myself get there? I was a fool. And this leads us to our third way you can respond. When you come face to face with the fact that Jesus has authority in ways that we don't, we can submit to it. We can say, Jesus, at the end of the day, you are God and I am not. I don't have the wisdom that I think I should have. I don't have the willpower. I don't think that I can live this life on my own. But here's the thing. You'll never actually want to submit to Jesus until you see that not only is his word sufficient, but it's also good. You know that? Because at the end of the day, you're going to be wondering, what, what if he asked something too severe of me? What if he asked something too hard that I just can't handle? What if he doesn't really know my good? You know, remember when, um, when Jesus is about to be crucified. And he's standing up there before Pilate. And Pilate's in a really tough spot because he has the Jews in one ear yelling at him, saying, crucify him, crucify him. And then he's got his wife in his other ear saying, don't have anything to do with this Jesus. And he's going back and forth and he's hearing the Jews and then he goes to Jesus and he is like asking him questions and Jesus is just standing there. And he's like... And Pilate is flustered, and he he goes up to Jesus, and he's like, do you not know that I have the authority to set you free or to crucify you? You know what Jesus says? He says, Pilate, you would have no authority over me if it were not given to you from above. What's Jesus saying? Earlier in that conversation, Jesus had just told him that Jesus was a king from another world, a higher world, a world from above. And what Jesus is saying is right there in that moment, Pilate, you don't have authority over me. I'm your authority, but I'm laying my authority down. And Pilate crucified him. How do you know that Jesus is going to use his authority in a good way? Because he didn't use his authority for his own freedom. He uses his authority for your freedom. That's exactly what we see in this passage. That he stands up with the authority from God himself as the perfect union between God and man, as the incarnate word, when he speaks, God speaks. And when he spoke, he rid the demon from a man, freeing him. He did exactly what he said he would do earlier in Isaiah 61, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's what he did. That's how he uses his authority. His authority is your freedom. Your authority is your bondage. His authority is your freedom. So he's shown us how he's going to exercise his authority. Yes, here in this passage, but most importantly on the cross. He shows us that 
with the authority of heaven and earth, he is actually able to make a difference in our lives. He is actually able to fix our brokenness, to fix our marriages, to fix our relationships with kids, to fix our relationships at work, to fix our broken, contrite hearts. That's great news, right? That he is actually sufficient and he is actually good. So why wouldn't you want to listen to him? Why wouldn't you want him to inform your life, to inform your decisions? Why wouldn't you want him speaking into your ear moment by moment, step by step, leaning on his word, tasting and seeing that it is good? It's only when we see that he is good where we actually want to submit to him. So let's submit to him. He's proven it. And he's proven that because his word is authoritative, because his word is good, that in the end, we will know and we will treasure and we will enjoy his goodness and the sufficiency of his word for all eternity. We will rejoice in the fact that we get to sit rightly underneath his authority, his reign. We will say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. We will say, reign king. So, as we finish, I want you thinking, as you read back through this passage, as you meditate on it, be thinking, where do I not believe that Jesus is really sufficient to handle my deepest, darkest issues? And then run to him, submit to him, place yourself humbly before him, and ask him to work. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact that, that we do get to submit to you. That God, you didn't abandon us when we, when we ran, when we took the fruit and we asserted our own authority. That the fact that you sent your son and that he laid down his authority so that he might use it for our freedom. God, we praise you for that. We praise you the fact that, that we actually can trust you at the end of the day. That we can actually trust that you are authoritative, that, you are, that your authority is sufficient and your authority is good. And I ask that that would be good news to us this day and even every day that we leave here. That we would continue as we recognize in our hearts this constant pull to assert our own authority and to manipulate you. That we would realize that you are God and we are not and that we would come right back to the humble place of submission. Recognizing that you are good in ways that we can't even fathom. And that we would love and delight more and more to submit to you and to let you control our hearts and our minds and that you would use all of this to form us more into your image. In Jesus' name, amen.